you may be questioning, some of you may be questioning how we could sing a song that talks about the wonderful cross. When we're talking about the brutal execution, the murder of an innocent person with trumped up charges, an illegal trial, we cry out for justice all the time in our world, and yet we sing about a wonderful cross. It seems ridiculous. We talk about Good Friday as we celebrate the day that the one we call Lord was killed, brutalized, humiliated. If we're going to understand that at all, we need to let God's word speak to us. So as we're, as we're going into this sermon time today, our approach, our hope, our prayer must be that just as God spoke through his word to Jesus in the wilderness, that he would speak to our hearts today so that we could understand by his word, by the presence of his Holy Spirit guiding us, what we can't really comprehend on our own in our human understanding. So before we do anything else, let's turn our hearts to him and pray and ask for him to guide us through this. Father, today, as we always do on the first Sunday of the month, we will be celebrating, celebrating what Jesus did for us on the cross. Lord, I'm not foolish. I know that every time we gather, there are people who are here for all sorts of reasons, many of whom don't have a personal relationship with Jesus. I know that. Lord, I know that there are people, whether here in the building or listening to the recording of this service or, or seeing the live stream, who have maybe spent their whole lives in church, raised in Christian families who don't know you. Not really, not personally. So, Father, I pray that today might be a step. Maybe not the step, but a step for each of these hearts. One step closer to, to seeing that cross as wonderful and horrible, but wonderful as the price of our freedom. Father, as we open your word and we explore this, this gospel, this history, this message that Luke has for us. I pray that you would open our eyes, that you would speak to us through your word. That your spirit would speak to us about your word. So that we might be shaped by your word. We pray all of these things for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, we're continuing our study in the book of Luke. We're calling it Dear Theophilus. And we're looking at this foundation uh, that Luke is trying to lay as uh, a confidence builder, if you will. He's setting up a foundation for a confident faith. And he's writing this, uh, this letter, this book, but it's really a, uh, it's written to someone. So if you can think of a book that's dedicated to a person as if it were a personal letter, that's what Luke is doing here. He writes to a, a friend, a colleague, many would say his benefactor. Uh, we don't know for sure, but uh, there's a lot of likelihood historically that this may have been someone uh, who was uh, either uh, saved out of Roman mythology uh, or was wrestling with that, perhaps someone from Caesar's palace, not the casino, and uh, now uh, providing the funds for Luke so that Luke could do his ministry, that he could write these things and, and work with Paul. A lot of speculation that goes along with that, uh, but that's kind of the, the setting that we're looking at. Luke is writing to this fellow Theophilus, and as he's doing so, his intention is that what this will do for Theophilus, it will do also for the church at large. And in chapter 1, Luke established that he himself had wrestled with these things. He had gone through and searched out the claims of the Christians. Being a Gentile himself, actually the only Gentile writer of Scripture, he's going through all of the things that he had heard from Paul and the other apostles. And as he's wrestling with them himself, he's investigating. Luke, being a man of, of science at that time, being a physician, he's approaching it from a rational, logical perspective. I want to see proof. I want to see evidence. And yet he starts with supernatural things. Angels showing up. Prophecies of, of these fantastic and wonderful but hard to believe things because Dr. Luke, having wrestled with these things and investigated them, comes to a place of realizing, man, however crazy it sounds, this is the real thing. And he's talked to eyewitnesses. He wasn't an eyewitness for most of these, most of these things, but he's talking to people who were there, getting the hands-on, nitty-gritty uh, First-hand accounts from people. Perhaps and probably even Mary, the mother of Jesus. Perhaps and probably uh, Matthew and the other apostles who had walked with Jesus and investigating these things. He's not trying to put together necessarily a chronological account. There are areas where he's not overly concerned with the order of things, which is why his order may vary from Matthew's. Uh, Matthew, being an accountant, was a little bit more uh, concerned with those things. And also, none of the Gospel writers were overly concerned with chronology as much as getting these things put together in an accurate way. So Luke has introduced Jesus. He starts out, actually, with John the Baptist before he gets to Jesus. He introduces these two because John is the forerunner who was prophesied in the Old Testament who would come and lay the foundation. He would pave the way for Messiah to come. He would preach repentance, and he would turn the hearts of the people from their way to God's way. And that was what John was baptizing for. We all hear the name John the Baptist. doesn't mean he was part of a Baptist denomination. That didn't exist for a couple thousand years here. So it came up much, much later. 
But as John is going around baptizing, he's dunking people under the water, he's actually taking this symbol that is used for identification with the way of life by the Greeks, later by the Jews. Now John does it among the Jews for those who know that they've lived in sin. They may have gone to the temple, they may have kept the ritual, but they knew that they weren't living God's way. So they were identifying with the act of repentance, changing their mind, changing their direction, no longer following their own leading, but following God. At the end of chapter 3, or in chapter 3, we've had this introduction to John and his baptism, but now Jesus comes with and among the people to be baptized and identified with repentance. Now, if this baptism is for repentance, turning from sin to God's way, then uh, that seems like an odd thing for Jesus. We learned last week that Jesus was identifying with the people. He was identifying with living for God. He was identifying with what he would later do in his death and resurrection which now Christian baptism represents. We identify with his death as we go under the water, and we identify with his resurrection as we come out. All of it, an, an identification, an illustration of a greater principle. And he finishes with a genealogy. We read through all those names last week if you were here. It was a good time. And... As, as we read that, the purpose of these genealogies being included in the first place is to establish that Jesus, as he's identifying with the people, he's already been announced as the Son of God. Now we see very clearly that he is fully human, that his bloodline goes all the way back to Adam on his mother's side. So Jesus, being fully God, is also fully human, and that becomes really important as we get into today's text in Luke chapter 4. So you're going to want to open your Bibles to Luke 4. If you don't have a Bible, we have some on the table out here. You want to make sure that you have one because you don't need to hear my opinion. You need to be able to check it against God's Word. So if you uh, need a Bible, if you don't have one of your own or you don't have one with you, just put your hand up. Mr. Todd will make sure that you're connected. Looks like we need one in the back row over there, Todd. anybody else needs one, don't hesitate. In Luke chapter 4, we see a new story, a breakout of what's happening in the life of Christ. And as we see it, we're going to, there are going to be some really important points. So what we're going to do is we're going to, we're going to read through the text, we'll walk through it, as briefly as I can after we read the whole story, as briefly as I can, that is, we'll talk about what happens and why that matters. And then we'll try to put the pieces together and clean it up at the end. Next week, we'll delve a little deeper into how that can practically impact us. How does what Jesus does in chapter 4 carry over into what you and I can do as we're walking through this life in our own struggles and temptations? All right, so as we, um, as we work into this, let's jump right into the text. Luke chapter 4, we're going to start with verse 1. I'll be reading from the New International Version, the 1984 edition, which is my favorite translation. It's just a matter of opinion primarily. Mine's right, though. Uh, anyway, 
JK, JK, LOL. Uh, okay, it's getting serious. Text. Verse 1. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, I would underline that in my Bible if I were you, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the desert. If it were my Bible, I would underline led by the desert. Where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. And at the end of them, he was hungry. He ate nothing during those days. How many days? 40 days he ate nothing. And Luke says he was hungry. Hashtag understatement. Verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God. Let, let me get the right tone here. Let me try again. If you're the son of God, no, that's not quite right. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it's written, man does not live by bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. For it has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. So if you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God. Serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. <coughs> Jesus answered, it says, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. For my own notes, I would underline until an opportune time. So, there's some crazy stuff that's going on here. First off, we have a conversation between Jesus and the devil. That by itself should have your synapses firing. Your mind should be ready to blow. Just at the fact that we're seeing the Son of God, the Messiah, in a face-to-face -face confrontation, conversationally, if you will, with the adversary of our souls the great antagonist of history, that great serpent who will be destroyed in the end, who deceived Adam and Eve in the beginning, at least deceived Eve. Adam seems to have gone in full knowing what was going on. And we get to, we get to see this. We get to listen to this. Jesus is facing temptation. He's facing this struggle. And as we look at what happens here, this isn't just a, a throwaway story. It's not something that we just get stuck in here. You'll find that Luke doesn't have those. It's funny what happens when God inspires what you write. But Luke doesn't include stories that are just fluff. He includes stories to make the point that there is a certainty to the reality of our faith. Chapter 1, verse 4, I write these things so that you may know the certainty of what you've been taught. 
This becomes all a foundation for the gospel. Right out of the gate here, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. The Holy Spirit descended on Jesus at his baptism. You may remember it comes in in this visible form. So as the Holy Spirit shows up, he manifests himself in a way that can be seen by everyone. That's kind of weird by itself. Holy Spirit, Spirit invisible. We often get this feeling about the Holy Spirit like some sort of a, you know, like the force, use the force, Luke, and all that kind of stuff. That's not who it is. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity demonstrating his personhood by showing up here in a visible way, separate and yet simultaneous with the Father and the Son. The Father spoke from heaven and said, this is my Son. In Luke's uh, recording here, it says, you are my Son, whom I love. Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit, and after the Spirit has descended on him, he now leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. This face-off with the devil is certainly not an accident. And he's tempted there for 40 days. Just a note you might want to bear in your mind. That word translated tempted here has many connotations and can also be translated tested. He was tempted by the devil, and at the same time he's being tempted by the devil, he's being tested by God. James 1 says that trials of many kinds constitute the testing of our faith. We'll see that in a moment. He ate nothing during those days. At the end of them he was hungry. Okay, yeah, right? It's not like he's fasting from donuts or fasting from meat and eating vegetables. He's not even eating locusts like John the Baptist was in his time in the wilderness. Jesus, following the prompting of the Holy Spirit, is voluntarily in this wilderness place, this desert of the Jordan area. So he's left the Jordan River. He's left the, the nice uh you know, lush area where people are being baptized, having had this victorious moment, and now, following the prompting of the Holy Spirit, he de deliberately puts himself in a really hard place, choosing not to eat anything for more than a month. There are a lot of takes on this. Some say it didn't happen. That's a bad take. Some say it's impossible. I think people like Gandhi and others who have had hunger strikes for extended periods of time have demonstrated that even in the flesh it is possible. And yet I think the greater take, which seems pretty obvious in Jesus' response here, is that he is being sustained by the Father. He's being strengthened spiritually in such a way as to care for him physically. So while he is fasting from food, that which satisfies the body, he is feasting on the word of God. He is feasting on the presence of God, that which satisfies the soul. He has other food, as he would later say to his disciples. I have food you know nothing about. Aren't you hungry, Lord? Let's get some food. Let's, let's run over to Taco Bell. We're going we're gonna to get some stuff. Man, you don't even know. 
my food is greater. My food is to do the will of the Father. The devil says to him, if you're the Son of God, tell the stone to become bread. Now, the devil's not wondering. He already knows he's the Son of God. There's a mockery involved. And the fact that he's asking it is really an affirmation. He knows he's the Son of God, and he's daring him to prove it. Yeah, sure you are. Sure you're the Son of God. Yeah, the Father loves you, doesn't he? Loves you so much he's leaving you out here in the wilderness to starve to death. Some father you've got. You must really feel close to him, right? I thought you were supposed to be the prince. The prince of peace, right? The mighty warrior. The king of all kings. Sure you are. What are you doing out here? Prove it if you're this guy. So often the enemy plays on our emotions. And he catches Jesus in this spot. And he hits him in three key areas. Physical, emotional, and psychological and spiritual and intellectual. He attacks them in, in these areas. And we're going to get into that a little bit more next week as we talk about some of the implications for us uh, as far as how we live our lives. But as we watch what happens uh, in, in this conflict betwe between Jesus and the devil, there is a core reality that Luke wants us to understand. Luke is putting this in here for one key purpose. There's much more we can glean from it, but his key purpose for including it is to, as he said before, show us the certainty of what we've been taught. How can we get this solid foundation for the gospel? And he wants us to recognize that only a sinless Savior could save a hopeless sinner. Only a sinless Savior could save a hopeless sinner. That's what Jesus is here for. And this narrative about his conflict in the desert with the devil is to establish and confirm that. Let's say that core reality together. Only a sinless Savior could save a hopeless sinner. All of us are sinners. Every single one of us, according to Romans 3.23, has fallen short of the glory of God. The Bible is replete with illustrations and clear instruction to demonstrate that every human being, by nature and by choice, inherits the sin of Adam and chooses our own way over God's way. That is the definition of sin. However else you boil it down, it's not about breaking the law, that's trespasses, that's a form of sin, but sin is in us before we even do that. Before the law was even given, sin reigned on the earth. Before there was a command to break, we already had a selfishness in us ever since Genesis 3. They had one command, and they broke it. Don't do this one thing. You had one job. And they eat. God had given them everything on the planet. There was only one possible way to sin. They did. We inherit that. And you and I constantly try to mask our sin with the belief that it's some sort of a good thing. If I accomplish a lot, that's a good thing. They accomplished a lot of the Tower of Babel, and God considered it an insult and a threat, and he scattered them because they were relying on their own strength rather than on him. God feels pretty strongly about this. David went and counted the troops. 
Seems like a good idea, doesn't it? Know how many troops you have. Except for David was supposed to be relying on God. And God sent a plague on Israel to deal with that sin. You and I deal with sin every day in our lives. Our own sin, the sin of others. Every sad, horrific news story you see is because of sin. When you see injustice in the world, when you see uh, bigotry and sexism and corruption, deceit, violence, hatred, war, all of these things come from the root of sin. It takes somebody outside of that to be able to fix it. The sacrifice for sin must be free from defect or blemish. Jesus was able to become the perfect sacrifice for sin on our behalf only because he was sinless and without spiritual defect. Notice this. The very first verse here we see it. The Holy Spirit led Jesus to the place of struggle and testing for God's good purpose. The Holy Spirit led Jesus to the place of struggle and testing for God's good purpose. Notice, after this great time with John and the others and this big uh, open acclamation as everybody's saying, Hey, wow, did you hear that? Was that thunder? No, the thunder doesn't speak. Did you see that, that dove? That wasn't a normal bird. That was something unique. And Jesus is declared to be the Son of God. And yet, right after this, the Holy Spirit, Jesus is filled now. That means he's following. He's, he is letting the Spirit lead him. He is being guided from that place into a place of hardship. The wilderness. Struggle and testing. Testing comes from God to strengthen and to build us. Temptation, temptation's a little different. Temptation to sin comes from the evil one to tear us down and paralyze us. You can keep uh, Luke 4 marked, but turn toward the back of your Bible to the book of James. If you get to Revelation, you went too far. There are some pretty skinny little letters between James and Revelation. We're going to look at James chapter 1. James, who just happens to be the brother of Christ, the pastor uh, leader at Jerusalem, is writing this letter. And notice what he says in James 1, verses 2 through 4. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brethren, whenever you face trials of many kinds, all sorts of struggles, all sorts of hardship, whatever you're running into, whatever is trying to trip you up, however bad it might seem, consider it, reckon it, think of it as pure joy. That's a dumb thing to say if it isn't inspired by God and the most brilliant thing in the world. Why would you consider trials joy? Because, he says, you know 
that the testing of your faith, note that word testing, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. What is perseverance? Endurance. The ability to bear up under something. To remain under, literally, from the Greek. An old preacher friend of mine called it stick-to-itiveness. It develops perseverance. And he says in verse 4, perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. You may see that rendered in your particular Bible and your translation as perfect, meaning complete. Having everything needed to be all that God requires you to be. Testing does that. Hardship does that. Struggle does that in us. Jeremiah 29, 11, God speaks to uh, his people that he's exiling. He's actually destroying the nation, his own beloved people. And he's sending them off into Babylon, captured by a wretched king and a sinful people, so that he can get them right, so he can build them. And he says to them, look, I know the plans I have for you. They're good plans. It seems terrible right now. It seems so hard. It feels like I'm abandoning you. But I know what I'm doing. And my plans for you are good. They're to prosper you, to build you up, not to hurt you or to tear you down. These plans will bring about a greater purpose. And you will return to me. The Holy Spirit led Jesus to the place of struggle and testing for God's good purpose. Notice this from 1 Peter 1.7. I'm going to read it to you from the New Living Translation because I like the way it's put there. Peter writes, These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It is being tested as fire tests and purifies gold. Isn't that a great picture? If we had enough room, we'd have done Refiner's Fire today as one of our songs. It's, it's such a... Such a picture. If gold were to have emotions, it probably would hate the fire. Right? Gold gets melted in the fire. It loses its shape and continuity. And in the meantime, all that is not gold gets burned up. And all that is pure remains. These trials will show that your faith is genuine. It's being tested as fire tests and purifies gold though your faith is far more precious than mere gold. So when your faith remains strong through many trials, it will bring you much praise, yes, it will bring you much praise and glory and honor on the day when Jesus Christ is revealed to the whole world. This came from the Holy Spirit to be there, to be in this place, to be starving after more than a month of not eating which presents an opportunity for the devil. Mark this. Between the celebration and the destination, the devil attacked with temptation, which God used as preparation. All right? Sometimes I get annoyed with these cutesy things that I come up with. But this is a principle that we need to grasp. This is what happens, literally happens to Jesus, and we're going to be looking at ourselves. And you should, every time we see one of these stories, when you see what actually happens to Jesus or any other uh, person that you see in the Bible, 
Take a look at the principle that God wants to apply in your life. Between the celebration and the destination, the devil attacked with temptation, which God used as preparation. In Genesis 4, 7, God speaks to Cain. You may know Cain. You may recognize the story of Cain and Abel. Abel brings a sacrifice which the Lord accepts. Uh, Cain brings a sacrifice which the Lord does not accept. Cain is jealous. He's angry toward his brother because it's unfair that God would accept him and not accept Cain. That's his take on it from his perspective. The rest of the details don't even matter at that point. So he strikes his brother down and kills him. <coughs> Buries him, tries to hide the body from God. Good call? Probably not. Just another fig leaf. You can't hide from God. So God shows up, knowing what's gone on, and says, Hey, Cain, where's your brother? How would I know? Am I my brother's keeper? The answer would be yes, but that wasn't the point. You are responsible for your brother, but God knew full well what was going on. And he says to him, Look, what's wrong with your face? This, was, this is actually before he kills Abel. He says, why is your face downcast? Don't you know? If you do good, you'll be accepted. If you do right, if you honor God, you'll be accepted. But if you don't, and this is the point we want to see, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. Sin is ready to pounce all the time. And we go from high points in our lives when we have other things that we're moving toward. And as, we, as we're moving, the devil attacks. He's ready to pounce. 1 Peter 5.8 says to be sober-minded and alert. Because your enemy, the devil, roams around like a, like a, a lion on the prowl. Looking for someone to devour. Jesus goes directly from baptism, this high point, filled with the Holy Spirit, into the wilderness and temptation. So he goes into the wilderness, and he is now hungry, starving, physically exhausted, emotionally drained, and yet he's doing this deliberately so that he can clear his mind from all of the satisfaction of the flesh and be satisfied only in the Father sustained by the Spirit. And as he does this, in this moment of physical weakness and exhaustion, the devil pounces, takes advantage of the opportunity. This wilderness experience comes before he serves in his public ministry. Before we can be used by God, we need to go through testing, refinement, like gold in a fire. Notice that the devil attacks the mind and heart of Jesus while he's physically weak and exhausted. And he attacks in three areas, as I mentioned earlier. We're going to see these in 1 John 2.16 next week in particular. We talk about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But for today, let's recognize this next point. That temptation provides the opportunity to choose my way over God's way. Temptation provides the opportunity to choose my way over God's way. Turn, if you would, to the book of James. If, you, if you're not still there, we, you know, we can use that same passage. We're going right back to James 1. Having talked about tempta- or trials and struggles as being pure joy because of the building they do, a little later in this same chapter, 
James points out that temptation in itself isn't sin. Temptation in itself isn't sin. Take a look at verses 13 to 15. When tempted, James writes, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil. That's antithetical. Evil is the opposite of God, so why would he be tempted by something which is the opposite of him? It's contrary to his character. He has no desire for evil, so he's not really tempted by it. Nor does he tempt anyone. Why would God tempt you to do what he doesn't want you to do? That was, doesn't even make sense. That's an illogical thing. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But, verse 14, each one is tempted, this opportunity is presented to us, when by his own evil desire he's dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth, to, uh, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. He goes on to say, uh, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who doesn't change like shifting shadows. Notice, that is significant, because the devil approaches us with lies. And as he comes after us, trying to get us to bite, trying to get us to give in, he is doing this with lies. He's telling you this gift from God isn't good enough. It's like, thanks, God, for this great gift. Do you have the receipt? Because, uh, you know, I'm going to go exchange this. I'm never going to wear that. I offer you robes of righteousness. Great. Can I get it in a different color? Satan keeps wanting to take what God has given and twist it. And when we're tempted toward things that are shortcuts to what God is giving us, or some alternative to what God is giving us, or it's a, a, the, the glory and the joy without the pain, then we are missing out on the fact that God in His nature gives us good and perfect gifts. It doesn't change. Temptation provides the opportunity to choose my way over God's way. That's sin. I have this opportunity. I see it there. I'm given this false advertisement that there's a better way than what God has given. And then the evil inside of me, that sin that's still holding on to me, drags me away. And I'm enticed to do wrong, to think wrong to feel wrong, to be wrong. And then when I give in to that, that's the birth of sin. All right? So when I have that temptation, that's not sin. When I have the desire to go that bad direction, it starts to drag me away. I'm already sliding downhill. Then when I culminate in this, this is where sin finds its birth. And eventually it gives birth to death. Write this down. Because Jesus lived free from sin, he could make us free from sin. Sorry, I jumped over one, right? Let me back up. I got my notes too close together. This is what you want. Jesus overcame temptation with a singular desire to please the Father. Jesus overcame temptation 
with a singular desire to please the Father. Jesus was not... He was not tempted because he wanted what the devil was offering him on the devil's terms. But if you think he didn't want what was being offered, you're mistaken. He's offering him food when he hasn't eaten in 40 days. You think he was hungry? Well, we know he was. Because it's said here. Not just hungry, you're talking about deep in the bones and muscles, my body is starting to eat itself away kind of hungry. I'm starting to really wrestle with every form of control. Now, if you've ever been so hungry that it might be considered hangry, and somebody needs to get you a Snickers, too bad Stacy left the room. She'd like to talk about that in the podcast. If you've ever felt like that, then you know, if you'll indulge me, you're not you when you're hungry. Satan knows that. He comes after Jesus in this moment of weakness. And it wasn't wrong for Jesus to want bread. It's not wrong for a body to want to be fed. It was wrong to try and take the shortcut. And that's what the devil's saying. God hadn't ended this yet. The Holy Spirit led him here. He didn't lead him away yet. And the devil's saying, look, prove it. You're God? Sure you are. You created the world. Sure, right. Make this into bread. You don't have to be hungry anymore. Why are you suffering like this? That is where it became sinful. And Jesus didn't have a desire for that. He had a desire to please the Father. John 4.34, he says to his disciples, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. That's what feeds me. That's what keeps me going. He had a singular desire to please the Father. Uh, in fact, in the very next chapter, in, in 530, it says, I'm only here to please the Father. I always do what pleases the Father. That's what made him tick. How did he overcome temptation? Because temptation was an opportunity, but it wasn't one he wanted. Check it out. When you're sitting there after your Thanksgiving meal, some of you are already thinking, oh, wow, I can feel it. And, and, and you're getting a little bit food-ebriated, right? You're, you're getting a little bit food drunk because things are starting to not really, you're not wanting to stand up. All you want to do is take a nap. And they bring out the desserts. What's your response? <laughs> no, maybe later, not right now. Because i got no room left. Jesus was so filled with his singular desire to please the Father that there was no room left for the rest. I was not, I'm not tempted by these other things because I've got it all already. Satan comes to him and, and says, here, have food. Hey, you know what? If you'll just worship me, you don't even have to stay there, Jesus. Just, just bow the knee, just a little bit. Just a little bit. It's not that big a deal. And I will give you everything you ever wanted. You'll be in charge of all this. You know Jesus had to have a desire for that. That's what he came for. He was already going to get it. Satan just offers him a shortcut. You get the crown without the cross. Jesus said, are you kidding me? I didn't come here to get it for me. I'm here to please the Father. 
He says, Jesus, if you really, if you really are the Son of God, if your daddy really loves you, test him out. He said that the Messiah would be watched over by the angels. That he couldn't strike his foot against a stone without God protecting him. Prove it. Show me that your daddy loves you. I don't believe it. Jump off the building. Now, you got to know, God was going to keep his promises. Jesus hadn't finished the work yet, so he wasn't going to die because God had a plan. But Jesus said, man, I didn't come here to show you. I already know my daddy loves me. I don't have to prove it to anybody. He overcame temptation with a singular desire to please the Father. In Galatians 5.16, we see that if we'll walk by the Spirit, if we'll walk by the Spirit, led by the Spirit of God, we won't gratify the desires of the flesh. That's how Jesus overcomes temptation. He's filled with the Spirit. He's consumed with the desire to please the Father. Now, here's the point that I made earlier that I was a little early on. Because Jesus lived free from sin, he could make us free from sin. Because Jesus lived free from sin, he could make us free from sin. We're building, as we go through this narrative, Luke is building, so we're building with him, to this culminating idea that only a sinless Savior could save a hopeless sinner. But Jesus is that sinless Savior, so he's able to save us. He wasn't exempt from human temptations. I'm going to have you turn to the book of Hebrews. If you're still in James, just back up one book. We'll look at a couple of things here, so that's why I'm going to have you turn. He wasn't exempt from human temptations. He faced all of these things the same as we do. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. There's a lot of interesting language in Hebrews because it's written specifically for uh, those children of Abraham, Jews, or, or those who were before the Jews, the Hebrews from whom the Jews came. And the writer here is connecting the dots so that those who grew up understanding God's law and the Hebrew tradition could see how the gospel connects, how all of it points to Christ. But in, in uh, chapter 2 of Hebrews, noticing verse, starting with verse 17. Man, there's so much more I want to read to you for it. For this reason, he, Jesus, had to be made like his brothers, that's us, in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. He stands on our behalf before the Father, as the priest did in the tabernacle and in the temple. And among us, as brothers, he had to be made like us in every way, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He gets it. He knows what you're going through. And because of that, he can identify and he can set us free. Turn, turn the page to chapter 4. <coughs> Continuing the thought 
We're going to read with verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Here's our, our key, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. In every way? Jesus didn't have the internet. In every way? He, Jesus didn't have that gas pedal to, to you know, break the speed limit laws on the highway? There are a lot of things Jesus didn't have. There's a reason Satan tempts him in these three areas. Because in every area of our life, Jesus is tempted. Every single one of us faced the same temptations. Your details might be different than mine. My details might be different than yours. But all the areas are the same. The flesh, our physical urges, the eyes, the desire for that which we don't have. The pride of life, including the, the pride of puffing up and also wanting to live. Fear of death falls into that. Maslow's concept of belongingness falls into that. To want to belong, to be a part of something, to be accepted and approved and loved. All of these things come in here. And in themselves, none of it is bad. Choosing to have it satisfied outside of the Father, outside of the gifts of God, outside of His plan, my way instead of His way. That's where sin comes in. Jesus was tempted in every one of these ways. Before Jesus could save us from sin, he had to overcome it himself. Jesus used the tools God gave each of us, God's word and God's presence, to overcome sin. This is why this narrative matters so much. Jesus didn't use his deity, his divinity, to overcome sin. He overcomes sin in the midst of his weakness between the celebration and the destination between where he came from and the high point and where he's going in his work for God, the glory will come later. In the middle of this, he's under attack. And it matters so much to us because he didn't overcome it with some supernatural tool that isn't available to all of us. He clings to the word of God. Satan accuses. Jesus says, this is the truth of God's word. It is written. Your feelings say this, and Satan plays on that. He just jumps in. And you're already feeling it. Jesus is already hungry. The devil just fans the flame a little bit. Do it this way. Is God really going to take care of you? There's a shortcut. You should respond. Let your feelings go. Follow your heart. Isn't that what we're told? Follow your heart. What horrible advice. Horrible. Jesus says, wait a minute, wait, 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 wait. My heart, my feelings, you know, I, I'm feeling this. But God says this, and I will stand, and I will not move. And every single one of us has the exact same opportunity to overcome sin using these same tools. God is with us. In fact, in Christ, ever since he left and sent the Holy Spirit, every single person who is in Christ, every person who receives him, receives also the Holy Spirit living in us. And if we will follow his leading, the presence of God with us, 
we will stand on the truth of God's word, no matter how I feel, no matter what my own understanding might say, might say to me, I trust in God, period. I overcome sin. We have that opportunity because Jesus did this for us. He could save us from sin because he's a savior without sin. In Exodus 12, we see the story of the Passover. We're going to uh, simulate that, if you will, when we finish the sermon. And we're going to engage in this ancient Christian ceremony, which builds on the ancient Hebrew ceremony of Passover. And as the angel of death came to the houses of everyone in Egypt to strike down the firstborn, those who followed God were to sacrifice a perfect spotless lamb, no blemish, no defect, and to paint the blood over the door. And they would be covered by the blood of the lamb. But this lamb had to be without defect. Every time we see the offerings in Leviticus and Numbers laying out how to find the forgiveness of sin through obedience to God, the sacrifice always involved a perfect animal without blemish, without defect. Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. That was the picture that God gave all through the Old Testament. Jesus becomes that sacrifice for us. At the end of Matthew's Gospel, and he, we see this in all of them, but he says it explicitly in Matthew 26.28. Jesus identifies himself with that Passover lamb. And he says, my blood... It's being shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. My blood, the blood of the Passover lamb without blemish, without defect, the only sacrifice that could be acceptable poured out for you as one of us having faced sin like us and yet never sinning in his response to it. Jesus is able to go on our behalf, not having to pay for sins of his own because he didn't have them, but to pay for our sins with his sacrifice. Because he is a sinless Savior, he's able to save hopeless sinners. Why does this matter? Luke is establishing that the gospel is worth believing. That's what the whole book is about, this story included. Luke is establishing that the gospel is worth believing, that we may know the certainty of the faith we've received. If Jesus isn't sinless, if he's human like us, and he does his best, but he fails, then his sacrifice is insufficient to pay for our sin. Because it has to pay for his. The rest of his life, he'll be demonstrating what we see in this, in this early picture. Now, for 30 years, Jesus has been living as a human. And he didn't sin until this point. Now he faces the devil face to face. And we have a picture of all of the temptation of humanity in this moment. And he resists. If Jesus isn't sinless, his sacrifice is insufficient. He needed to, to face the temptation in his humanness in order to be our representative. B. 
because he faced our struggles in every area, but never sinned in response, he is able to save completely. He's able to do it. Why does it matter? Because if it isn't this, if this isn't reality, then all of our faith is worthless. It's worthless. We're still in our sin. Still trying to please God through our actions. How's that going for you? If, I, if my righteous acts, according to Isaiah, are like filthy rags, I got no hope. This matters because Jesus was able to die on our behalf because of his sinlessness. Only, only a sinless Savior could save a hopeless sinner. So we have hope in him. What difference does it make in my daily walk? Well, Jesus overcame sin for me at the cross. He was able to set me free from my own sin by paying with his life for it. We're going to look at the practical implications of that more deeply next week. But our memory verse for this week, and I would encourage you to get this deep in your heart from Romans 6.18, you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. Jesus, in his death, has set us free from the performance trap of trying to work up to God's good graces. No, 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 no. It's by grace you're saved, through faith. Because Jesus paid the price for us. And if the price has been paid, then you and I can take this offer that he's given to us and if we will receive him, if we'll leave all of our junk at the table that he's invited us to, then we can be free to just live, to not have to think about, man, am, am, am I doing well enough? Am I doing all the right things? What happens when I blow it? Am I trying hard enough? Am I really giving my best? All those questions go away. Because in Him, we've been set free. Free to live, to dance, to run, to enjoy this life for His glory. He became sin so that we don't have to have our sin anymore. I want to invite you to take this seriously. In just a moment, we're going to celebrate what Jesus did on that horrible, wonderful cross. And when we do, for some of you, this may be the first time you've ever really considered what this means. You've known about Jesus and you've believed in God and, and to whatever extent you've believed in Jesus, but you haven't received Him as your own. You haven't made Him the ruler and leader and master of your life. You haven't relied on Him as your only hope. Maybe you didn't even know that you needed hope. But God created you for a relationship with Him. What Jesus did in living for the singular pleasure of God is what all of us were created for. And as He does these things, He's living out our purpose. Your sin separates you from Him. 
And if you will simply trust that his sacrifice is enough, you can be his forever. His fully accepted child. As the children enter, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank for the knowledge that Jesus was able to save us completely because only a sinless Savior could save a hopeless sinner. We thank you that he was that for us. That he is that today. Saving us not only from the penalty of sin, but from the power of sin over us. Lord, we have so much to learn and, and we're going to keep on growing and learning and, and, and learning to walk, but let us do so as those who have been reborn. Thank you for setting us free. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When Jesus, as I mentioned in, in Matthew 26, 28, when he was identifying himself with that Passover, he was gathered in this uh, in this borrowed apartment, this upstairs apartment with his friends. And it was the Passover weekend when they would celebrate, as they did every year, this high point of the Jewish calendar. And as they celebrated Passover together, at the end of the meal, Jesus makes this huge, mind-blowing transition. And he takes the bread that symbolically represented the affliction and the suffering of God's people, Israel. And he says, this bread, you, you know what this means. You know this represents the suffering of our people. This bread now represents my body. And he identifies with Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53 that he would take the suffering of the people on himself. By his stripes, we would be healed. Jesus is the substitute. Theologians call it penal uh, substitutionary atonement. He was the substitute who paid our penalty to appease the wrath of God. What it means is, I did bad things. I have bad in my heart. Jesus took all that on himself and became the suffering of the people. And he identified himself with the cup after dinner, which was the cup of redemption. It symbolized the blood of that lamb that we mentioned. And he said, from now on, every time you do this, recognize this cup, this is now a new covenant, a new way of relating to God, signed in my blood, my blood. Not a lamb that's going to have to be sacrificed again and again and again, but my blood as the sinless Savior poured out for you, suffering and dying in your place, so that by trusting in this and receiving this gift that I'm paying for, you can have eternal life. Not being separated from God for eternity. Not all of the, the torment and condemnation that comes with sin, but instead, my sinlessness is attributed to you if you will simply receive it. So for all of us who have trusted Him, when God looks at me, when He looks at you, anyone who is in Christ, all He sees is Jesus. That's why that cross is wonderful. 
because while it was the instrument of torture and suffering for my Savior, it is the means by which he became my Savior. His death purchased my life and yours if you will receive it. Every month we go through this ritual and we have this matzah here. It's nothing magical. It hasn't, doesn't have some special blessing on it so you eat it and you get holy. It's not like that. Jesus makes us holy. Only Jesus. We have this cup. It's grape juice. It's grape juice. That's what it is. It's not going to cleanse you of your sins. Only Jesus does that. But if you have embraced this, you don't have to be a member of real life. You don't have to ever have done this before. You don't ever have to have had any knowledge of this before. But if you are ready to say, you know what? I don't get it all, but I'm all in with Jesus. And I want to celebrate what he did for me in a sober, heavy remembrance that leads to a joy because we are free in him. Then by all means, I want to invite you to take it. If it's not for you, if you're not ready to say, I'm 100% all in with Jesus, 24-7, He has my life. Then let it go. God honors our integrity. As the ladies sang a song for us, an invitation song, to come to this table, everyone is welcome. But you can't come and leave unchanged. As they sing this song for us, I'm going to invite you to come together. We'll come up on, on your left here in this aisle and come across and you take the bread and the cup, take these elements back to your seat. And then together, uh, we'll, we'll take the elements at the end. And if you've never done it, man, don't do it just because it's cool. But if you've never done it because you've never believed before, believe now. What are you waiting for? This kind of love is what your heart has been longing for. Jesus offers it freely because he already paid for it. Let's pray together. Father, you know the hearts of every one of us. You know every single detail of our lives, every thought. Help us to quit trying to fool people and to quit trying to fool you. We've had so many fig leaves in our lives trying to cover our shame and our nakedness, trying to act like we've got it together. Lord, right now, in the midst of this assembly, strip us bare. Strip away every bit of covering that we have. Expose us. Help us to stop caring what anybody else thinks just to be yours thank you for Jesus and the perfect sacrifice he made on our behalf pray this in his name